I want to thank the leaders, the elders of the church for inviting me to speak with you today. I've chosen a passage that I believe is the most encouraging passage in the Bible for all those who have to do with the leadership of God's church. You don't often hear a sermon directed to the pastor, but it's mostly for him and the leaders of the church. Some of you don't know who I am, and it makes no difference if you don't. But I'm Ted. I pastored this church for five years, a long time ago. And I'm talking about over 30 years ago. I'm now 80, and when I see Ben, I have to say this, Ben is 10 years older than me. <laughs> and whenever I see Ben, I think of what I will look like when I get to be his age. <laughs> and the last time I said that, Ben says, and I hope just as handsome. <laughs> My first question to you, and particularly to the young people, is how many books are in the Old Testament? I found as a teacher that if you want the kids to get quiet, ask a question. I'll give you a very simple formula to remember this. How many letters are in the word old? Three. And how many letters are in the word testament? Nine. So three and nine is 39. So that's how many books in the Old Testament. You put three and nine and you have 39. Now, how many books are in the New Testament? New has three letters and Testament has nine letters. You multiply the two and you get what? 27. So that's it. And together they make 39 and 27? 36. I'm not giving out any prizes for the answer. So. Um, if you want to have a concept of the whole Bible, you want to read the book of Isaiah. How many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? Sixty-six chapters. So the first 39 chapters deal with the Old Testament and the other 27 deal with the New. So the book of Isaiah is the synopsis of the whole Bible. I don't believe they thought of it that way, but it ends up being that way. And the way that the Old Testament is set up you have five books that are called the books of the law, books of Moses, and then that follows 12 books that are called the books of history, 
And how many is that? Five and 12. 17. In the middle are the five poetic books. Then you're followed by five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. So you have five and 12, five, five and 12, or 17 and five and 17. It's not chronological, but it gives you an idea when they group the books together. I've chosen to speak today from Zechariah, and that's found in the second to last book of the Old Testament. For the most part, the only thing we know in the book of Zechariah is chapter 4 and verse 6. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord. And if you had to take a quiz to get to heaven, and they said to you at the gates, here's a piece of paper, give me a, give me a paragraph of the book of Zechariah. I wonder how many of us will get in. You know, some books are, might as well be written in a foreign language because we have no idea what they contain. But if you remember to the Jews, all they have is the Old Testament, and therefore it is important because the New Testament is simply a revelation of the old. As Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So whatever was predicted in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the New. I'll give you an example. And we were dealing with this in our Sabbath school class today. When we think of Jesus, he is always Jesus Christ. Or, to be more exact, Jesus the Christ. Because Christ is a title, he's the Messiah, the anointed one, that's what that means. But when Jesus refers to himself, it is always as the Son of Man. Did you notice that? And the reason behind that comes from a vision that Daniel had when he was in Babylon. In chapter 7, there's going to be one who's like the Son of Man. Let's take a look at that. There is the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and then you have the Son of Man. So Jesus portrayed himself in the New Testament as the one who fits into that scheme of things as the Son of Man. And what does he do? In the vision, nations bow down and worship him. So he's not just a man, he's a God-man because he accepts worship. It's different from us in the sense that he's the only being in the universe that has two distinct and separate natures. He's fully God and fully man. He never got rid of his nature as, the, as God. He laid it aside as in the communion service he takes his outer garment, places it aside, takes a towel, which is a symbol of service, girds himself with the towel, 
pours the water in the basin and begins to wash. So he lays aside his divinity when he takes on humanity. Well, now let's look at chapter 4 of Zechariah. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to ask you questions, so you have to uh, pay attention. The angel that talked with me came again. There's a lot of feedback I'm getting from this mic. I don't know if it's up too loud or what it is. So. Thank you. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. I don't have a problem if you want to go to sleep. The only problem I have is if you start snoring. <laughs> because that interferes with the guy beside you and in front of you. I've discovered in the Bible that whenever God has something important to say, people are asleep. You remember when they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration? In Matthew 17? What, did, what was Peter, James, and John doing? Sleeping. You remember in Gethsemane? When he asked them to watch with him one hour, they couldn't. They fell asleep. There's a lot of sleeping going on. But that's okay. Today the sermons are taped. <laughs> so you can always go back to see what you missed. He said to me, what seest thou? It does not remind you of Jeremiah when they, they asked Jeremiah what it is he saw? And what did he say he saw? I gave you a hint. It was found in Jeremiah. Well... Look it up. I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold, with seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side, and one of the bowl, and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered, and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, Je ne sais pas. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. That little girl that read the scripture did a magnificent job, didn't she? I haven't, uh, she's done better than I've seen some adults struggle at reading the scripture. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace upon it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who had despised the day of small things? 
that they shall rejoice and shall see the bonnet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches that through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said, Knowest thou not what these be? There's a lot of questions and answers in it. And I said, No either K. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This incidentally is the fifth vision that Zechariah has. Fifth. One of these days I'd like to deal with the fourth vision, which is to me just as important as the fifth. So let's, let's look at it. What do you picture when it says here, I looked and behold a gold, a candlestick, all of gold. What comes to your mind immediately when you hear about a candlestick? Sanctuary. Very good. But this side seems to have it. We've got to get some answers from this side. It's, it's sanctuary language. Now, it's interesting that it's one candelabrum with seven branches. What about Solomon? What did he have in his temple? What do you call? Give me the side. Solomon. When, you know, Solomon had an interesting philosophy. If one thing was good, a thousand is better. So he always did more. So he had ten candlesticks. Now in the book of Revelation, John is in vision and he is in the sanctuary. What does he see in chapter one? Got to go quickly. What does he see? He sees seven lampstands. Sanctuary, there's one candelabrum with seven branches. In Revelation, there are, ten, there are seven distinct and separate lampstands. And it says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. See it? Incidentally, he's is described as a priest. He has a garment down to the foot. Remember all, all of that? And the most interesting part, he is girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Have you ever seen that? Very interesting. The Greek word for paps is mastos, in which you have two words in English. Mastectomy and mastitis. You know what those are? Mastectomy. My daughter had a mastectomy. And mastitis is when the udder of a cow has been infected and the milk can't flow. And you have to have a vet giving some antibiotics to clear up the infection. The interesting thing about this word, it's not a masculine word. It's a feminine word. And it's the only concept that we have of God 
in that light is when he said to Abraham, walk thou before me and be thou perfect, for I am the almighty God. And the Greek, the, the Hebrew for almighty God is the El Shaddai. Shad means breast, and Elohim, El for Elohim, God. He is the one to whom you can come and find comfort in the time of your struggles. Incidentally, it is mentioned, El Shaddai is mentioned 34 times in the Old Testament, and 31 times it is mentioned in one book. Take a guess, what book? No, it's not Hosea. And when I say it, you're going to say, well, yes, that's true. It's the book of Job. When you come to the end of your ropes and you don't know where else to go, El Shaddai is there. And Jesus put it this way. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. When a child is hurting, does he go to the father or the mother? And when he goes to the mother, what does the mother do? Puts the child on her breast and comforts the child. This is the concept you have of God as the El Shaddai. It's always there seeking to comfort, to nurture, okay? So now we go to Zechariah. I, I think I have your attention now, so we can get into the study. What seest thou? A candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it. Can we take a look at a slide on that? There are the two olive trees, and one is on the right, one is on the left, and there is a candelabra in the middle. Next slide. It says there's a bowl on the top of the candlestick. Can you see that? There are two golden pipes that come from the olive trees to the center bowl. And from that bowl, there are seven pipes that lead to each branch of the candelabra. This is, what, this is what he's seeing in, in, in vision here. And these two olive trees by it, one on the right, one on the left. And he says, what are these about? And he has no idea what it is. What is the purpose of the oil? Now in Israel, oil, olive oil, has three purposes. It is used as food, it is used as an ointment. Uh, where I come from, we used to rub our skin with oil. Most of the time it was coconut oil to keep the skin from getting dry, keep it moist. And the third reason is they made soap from it. That's a surprise, soap made from the olive. By the way, you can't eat an olive from a tree. It has to be 
cured. It's the only way you can eat it. You can't eat it a green olive. It has to be cured. And the oil flows from the olive tree into this bowl. So the bowl is full of oil. The oil has to flow by those seven pipes into the seven branches. Over each branch is a receptacle that holds the oil. Now you have to have, it, it, I'm talking to the old timers now, these young generation doesn't know this. When we used to use lamps, do you remember anyone when we used to use lamps? We used to call them kerosene lamps. And you had to have a wick. Do you remember that? And every day, every morning, every evening in the sanctuary, they had to trim the wick. Why? Do you remember? Because when you are burning a wick, the end gets barred, it's charred. So when you turn off the lamp, when the day, you know, when the day comes, you have to trim that burnt part off to light it again, otherwise it doesn't light. And um, one of the biggest issues we have with God is, you know, he says he chasteneth those that he loves. The same hand that lights the wick is the same hand that trims the wick. We don't like the trimming part, but he ha it has to be trimmed. And the wick is usually made from the discarded white robes of the priests. They cut it into strips, as you know. Um, before we had electricity in some places, we used flambeau. Remember, you put kerosene in the bottle and put a cloth in it and light it up. You can use it as a torch. Today they use it as a mortal cocktail, they use it as a, as a weapon, uh, but uh, some of you may remember those days. But now you have the oil and you have the wick, what do you need? Don't be afraid to answer, you need fire, you need fire. No good is the wick and the wick. you have to have fire. Now. In the case of Israel, where did the fire come from that lit the candlestick? Huh? I can hear a motorcycle outside, but I can't hear you in here. If you recall that when the sanctuary service was built, God sent holy fire, didn't he? That fire never went out for over 400 years. They moved in the wilderness 50 places in those 40 years. And the way they kept the fire going is they kept the coals in the censers. So whenever they set up camp, they would use that to start the flame. And it was from the altar in the courtyard that the flames were taken into the holy place. And not only did it light the candlestick, but it also, there was another furniture in there called 
the altar of incense, and incense was offered at that altar. That altar represented the righteousness of Jesus. And as the priest prayed for the people and offered the incense, the incense rose up and mingled with the prayers of the people as it went to God. And there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And that curtain didn't go all the way to the top. There was a space so that the incense can flow over into the most holy place. And there was one article of furniture in there called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a receptacle that kept the Ten Commandments. And over it was a lid called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat was the Shekinah glory of God. So the prayers of the people through the priests could be heard by God. See it? That happened every day. And Wednesday this week was the Jewish holy day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that was the day when the high priest, only the high priest, could go into the most holy place and then the sanctuary was cleansed. But now let's look at those symbols. Can we have the next, the next slide? You would discover that this large bowl in which the oil was kept, the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the bowl is your heart. And the, every time you read the scripture, the holy oil of God, that's his spirit, fills your heart. It's the, the Hebrew language is a picturesque language. And many of us are visual. There are only three types of people. The visual, the audio, and the kinesthetic, the people who are into feelings. And um, the visual people like to see things. They understand things better when they see it. They'll say, ah, I see what you mean. See the word they use. The audio people who use a lot of times their left brain, they'll say, I understand what you're saying. This is a different concept, see? And the people who are in the feelings, they'll tell you how they feel. You ask them a question, how you feel, and they'll tell you how they feel. You have to have the time to listen to the way they feel. And um, the idea here is that when the word of God comes into your heart, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of the oil filling your heart? In the, in the sanctuary service, the oil had to burn. That means it had to give light. It has a purpose. Everything in God's creation has a purpose. Everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the grass, fish, animals, and especially man has a purpose. And the sooner that you discover that purpose, the more fulfilling your life is. Some people can go their whole life and never knew what God's purpose was for their life because they never knew God. So the first thing you learn here is that a candlestick is to give light. 
In order to give light, it needs oil and it needs a flame. Take a tree. We're looking at trees. They are shade trees and they're fruit-bearing trees. And what's the purpose of a fruit-bearing tree? To produce fruit. And when you eat the fruit of a tree, the, Jesus puts it one step further. He doesn't say you are the fruit. He says you are the branch. The branch connected to the tree produces fruit. You eat the fruit, but now you are connected to Christ, you become the branch. Producing fruit that others might eat fruit from your branch so that they can now be connected with God so that they become a branch by which they produce fruit for other people. See how it works? It just goes on and on and on. So it starts in the sanctuary with just one candelabra. But by the time you finish, God's purpose is that we, what did he say to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the child of God, as we read in the Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. Not just your community of the world. Because God's people are everywhere. And the indication of this is seen in the life of Christ. Notice what he did. He went over here and he healed someone. He went over here and he raised the one from the dead. He goes over here and he teaches little pockets of light wherever he went. And then when he left, you become the light of the world. So we become what he was when he was here. So it's a purpose. And we sing that, let your little light shine. See, this is, pardon me, that's how that is. So your purpose as you read the word is to let the word now flow out of you and you become a light to the world. See, one comes in and one goes out. All right, I think we have another slide that we can see it a little better. In this case, you have the branch rather than the tree. So it's a little more close up to it. If the bowl at the top represents your heart and the oil coming into it is the grace of God that he gives to you, then what good is the light, pardon me, what good is the oil if you don't set the candlestick on fire? So you sit here each week or you may come as a visitor and you hear the word of God and it comes into your heart. What are you supposed to do now? The, the tendency is, if you keep it in the heart, then it's good for you. But your purpose is not being fulfilled because that light has to be given to others. Now the question is, how much can you drive, how far can you drive on a full tank of gas? And you do this either running around town or on long trips. Some folks have come from Orlando here today. And you, you use up depending on the car you're driving. Your ability to replace the gas in your car is dependent upon what? 
how empty the tank is. If your tank is full and you don't go anywhere, how much gas would you need the next time you went to the pump? So it is possible that we can come here every week and be fed to capacity to come back the next week, how much more can you take if you haven't done anything with what you've learned? See the point here? So before I go to that quotation, I want to read this part. This is verse 6. He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the leader. Joshua is the high priest. Not by might nor by power. Now this is an interesting concept. The greatest example of might of this country is in what? It's all the veterans ought to know that answer. It's in our armed forces. That's the greatest demonstration of might. The power that that government has over its people. I remember um, Peter when Jesus was arrested in the garden and took his sword. Do you remember that? And Jesus said, he who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. We don't need that kind of power for the love, for the Christian life. It's not that kind of power. What we need is the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the problems that pastors have is that they get the idea that the success of the church is determined upon them. So the more they contribute to the cause, the more successful the cause will be. The conference determines the success of a church on two things. The tithe and the membership. So that each year the tithe should increase 10% and the membership should increase 10%. That's, that's their barometer of a church. If a pastor is not getting success in what he's doing in the eight hours he's supposed to be working, then he works 12 hours. Then he may be working 18 hours. And the sad part is the congregation lets him do that. They pay the tithe, it supports the minister, therefore he does the work, and we let him burn out. I want to, I want to show you a text, and, and I want you to give it to me if you have an NIV. Okay, but we're going to look at the King James. And the King James gives us the idea of what we do. That is all wrong. 
All right? This is, keep your finger, we're coming back to Zechariah, and it's found in Ephesians. Do you have Ephesians? Chapter 4. And when I've preached this in one church, they, they like the King James. <laughs> I don't like the King James, but they do. Um, We're talking about the, the unity of the spirit. Did you see that? Verse 11. Ephesians 4:11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. What's the reason? For the perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So... Prophets, apostles, evangelists, and pastors are to do the work of the ministry. If someone wants to read the NIV, you have an NIV? Stand up and read it for me. I know you have your little... Yeah, okay. Oh. All right, hold on there a minute. See what they're supposed to do? They are, the pastor, the teacher, the prophet, the, the band, are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see that version? King James gives you the idea that the pastor is to do the work of the ministry. Finish that up. There you go. Thank you so much. There you go. So when each person in the church finds his gift and then is assigned to that gift, that's how the church meets its objective. And the goal of the church is to be equipped for ministry. But when you let the pastor do all the ministry, it's going to be a heavy burden he has to carry. And that, and let me tell you this, it affects his family and it will affect his ministry. It's not, not easy. And, um, but here's what Zechariah is saying. So we go back to Zechariah and this is what he's saying. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is his, let me put it to you this way. When Jesus died on the cross, we are now justified, right? But there's a process from justification, you gotta have sanctification. So justification is my title to heaven, but now I gotta have my fitness. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring sanctification to us. Think, think of the moment can't be sanctified, that is set aside for holy work unless the Spirit is with you. And so those who have to do with the ministry of the church must not depend upon their might or their power. 
And we have our university here in town. And we figure if we have degrees and we have professions that uh, we're going to bring all kinds of, um, how do you put it, bring all these equipment and all these technologies into the church. Doesn't do it. Doesn't do it. So the whole issue here is if the spirit is in it, that's where the success is. And as we read now in Zechariah 4, it says, The hand of the Zorabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, that thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts had sent me unto you. This was when they came back from Persia and started to rebuild the temple, and they got very discouraged because of the enemy around, because it was taking too long, and they were on the verge of giving up. And the prophecy says that the same man who laid the foundation is going to finish the work. And that's why there was great joy when the capstone was put on the top because they know it was finished and there could be big rejoicing in this. But it's the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying here. Then he goes on and verse 12, I answered again and said, because this, this is dealing with the olive tree. What these are these two olive branches that through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So now there you go. So the reason for the olive trees is to produce the oil and from that oil we have fire that light the candlesticks. You see the process there. Now, if you could go to the next slide, if we have another slide. Oh, this is, not, this is our conclusion. I want you to read that. The capacity for receiving the holy oil from the two olive trees, which emptied themselves by the receiver emptying that holy oil out of himself in word and in action to supply the necessities of other souls. Work, precious, satisfying work to be constantly receiving and constantly imparting and listen to the last statement. The capacity for, for receiving is only kept up by imparting. So the more you give in service to God is the more oil you can receive. If you're not giving, you're not going to receive anything. You've got to give what you have, and then the capacity is in relationship to how much you give. And there are people, as you know, out there who need to hear this. They need to have this oil. They need to know that Jesus is there for them, that the Holy Spirit is there in them. And, and you say, well, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't be what God wants me to be. And if you have a doubt about this, you ought to read Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, it speaks of men who did great things for God but it didn't stop there it talks about those who didn't do very much for God but still make it Samson it is said of Samson that the spirit moved him at times not all the time only at times and yet Samson is going to make it the man that gives me a lot of encouragement is Gideon Gideon won only one battle for God. 
And you know how he ends up? It says at the end of his life he had 70 sons, many wives, and he had a son with a concubine. And Gideon makes it. Then you have Rahab. She's in there. A harlot in Jericho. And all she did was put up two spies. That's it. And you say, well, she lied. Well, of course, she didn't know the Lord. But she... And there's some things God excuses, you know. Did Sarah lie? When the Lord said, your wife Sarah laughed. He said, I did not laugh. And the scripture says, she lied because she was afraid. That's a key to understanding human beings. When your children lie, it's because they're afraid. Interesting. It's one of the reasons we lie. There's other reasons we lie too. We lie because um, we try to, we could lie out of love, you know, to protect our family or so on. But the key here in what we're saying is that when you beat up on yourselves and think that you don't have any talent, you don't have any gifts, there's nothing you can do for God, you might find just one thing, just one thing for him. And he could use that one thing. But in the gift of the talent, if you don't use that one talent, it's going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else. So use that one thing. And when I see a tree, all a tree does, it doesn't talk, it doesn't walk, it just holds its branches up. That's all it does. Right? Do you remember the man who had his hands up? Moses. And as his hands were held up, what happened? The people were winning the victory, right? And once he put his hands down, what happened? They started to lose. So what did they do? They got a stone, put him on a stone, and Aaron and her held his hands up for him until <laughs> the battle was won. So that's, if all that you can do is hold your hands up. That's, that's it. Nothing big. If God had asked her to do something big for him, when most of us will fail. But you notice what he says? Who will despise the day of small things? No, don't, don't. Don't put yourself down because oh, you're just a little cog in the wheel and nobody knows. No, no, no. You're important to God. So let his word fill you with the oil. That's the Holy Spirit. And let that fire come into your life that you could shine. And in closing, I want to take you to the 11th chapter of Revelation. And it speaks of the two. Did you notice what it does? It's a little different there. It speaks of the Old Testament and the New Testament in regards to the Word of God. And when you receive the Word of God, Old and New Testament, which one you're reading, then you have the power of God in your life.